Good evening, my darklings. Tonight, we are going to talk to Dr. Jeff Tarrant. Fascinated by the paranormal as a child, it wasn't until he started really sinking in as a neuroscientist that, and, and a hardcore skeptic that things began to come to life for him in the world of the paranormal. You guys are going to absolutely love this guest because, like us, Many of us with a fascination in the supernatural and paranormal in a young age. Some of us have continued on this journey. Some have questioned and brought science into the fold. And our guest has a nice way of bringing both worlds together. And the stories he has to share are remarkable. That's next right here on the Best in Paranormal Programming. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is my Paranormal 60. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this baloney. You won't know. He doesn't stand for baloney. Sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. Supernatural. Perhaps. Baloney. Perhaps not. You know, you know, Dave, I love your show. I love tuning into your show, and I can follow the woo train like anybody else. But, man, once in a while, would it kill you to bring a little science to this, to give us a chance to wrap our heads around science's perspective of the strange and supernatural? Would it kill you, Dave? Obviously, it wouldn't. I've been doing this 18 years, and I've talked to scientists on and off throughout those 18 years. But you want science? You think you deserve science? I'll bring you science, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to go sciencey tonight, and we're going to have fun while we're doing it because our guest is the author of a brand new book. Dr. Jeff Tarrant is the author of the new book, Becoming Psychic Lessons from the Minds of Mediums, Healers, and psychics. Oh, Dave, this isn't science. This is some guy selling a book on how to become a psychic, just like a billion other people out there. No, not like a billion other people. Did you guys miss the part when I said Dr. Tarrant? Pay attention for God's sakes. It's not that hard to follow for crying out loud. Let's bring him onto the show right now. Dr. Jeff Tarrant, I'm sorry for all of the negativity already coming into my imaginary conversation. Hey, I, I love it. You can just keep going. It's uh, It's very entertaining. Well, I, it's a pleasure, man. I'm so psyched to have you on. Uh, when I got the press release about your book and they sent me the copy of the book, and again, I've got to be honest with you, I, I brought up the fact of becoming psychic as what's, you know, people are immediately going to jump to a conclusion on something. And I love the fact that you're bringing science into the fold, your skepticism, the way that the brain works, looking at the different elements of what's taking place during supernatural experiences. And you make it very easy and palatable to digest and follow along. So that's my first uh, congratulatory measure to you is that I appreciate somebody that can do all this and not talk over our heads or belittle the reader as though those that believe in the supernatural are idiots. Because that can be a tough tough line to, to kind of skate on when you're coming at it from the scientific perspective. But you... You were a paranormal nerd from an early age. When you were a kid, you dug this stuff. You loved the strange and supernatural. Oh, man. I mean, that was, I couldn't get enough of it. You know, it was, uh, you know, all my other friends were, you know, doing normal kid stuff, right? You know, uh, you know, sports and, uh, you know, playing with cars and things like that. And, and honestly, I was much more interested in 
Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs and aliens. And, uh, you know, that was what captured my imagination. And, and, you know, even from that age, it was, it was kind of like, you know, I mean, it's interesting looking back, you know, did I believe it was true or did I just want it to believe true, believe it was true? I, I don't know, but maybe it didn't matter back then, but, uh, you know, that was, that was really, I could have spent all my time doing that. In fact, you know, I, I wanted to research that stuff. That's what I wanted to do for a living. Of course, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I was cutting out articles from the, you know, skeptical, skeptical or uh, what's it called? National Enquirer, you know, and like, uh, you know. Yeah, don't say that and Skeptical Inquirer. Those are two different no, magazines. No, 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 no people totally. the Skeptical Inquirer are going to be quite offended by that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, that, that was my idea of research back then was, you know, like anything I could find, right, on demon possessions and alien abductions and, you know, in the National Enquirer, that was my idea of research. So, you know, yeah, I've come a long way. Yeah, or have you? Because we'll find out as the show progresses. Um, what I what I love, and I want to come back to kind of a basic element of your life story. We'll get back into it regarding your stepfather, because I find a strange commonality between your life and the life of many people I know in this field. And I, I'd like kind of your scientific thoughts on that as well, because I think that we do have to address that aspect of the fascination with the paranormal. So. Yeah. Do you remember, okay, you were immersed in it, you loved it, you were reading everything you could get your hands on, you sound like a young Dave Schrader, uh, <laughs> you know, digging into everything and anything you could find when other kids are reading Hardy Boy and Nancy Drew Mysteries, I'm asking if there's any uh, National Geographic articles that talk about Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, and I'm I'm reeling through microfiche to weird, read weird stories, so I appreciate you. Do you remember, though, what age were you when that fascination started to wane and you started to pull away from that immersive nature? Um, I think it was a gradual process, uh, you know, because I mean, certainly as I moved more into junior high, you know, my interests were much more focused on uh, girls and, you know, and friends and having fun. And so at that point I was paying way less attention to that kind of thing. But I still liked comic books and Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, so I, I, I think it kind of took a different angle, right? It kind of shifted away from, uh, you know, some of the more traditional paranormal things and, and more into fantasy, uh, you know, explorations, you know. Um, but, so but let me get this straight. You like yeah. the paranormal comic books and Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. We just become best friends, Dr. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> he said my mom will let us build a, a bunk bed in my room then. So um, much more room for activities. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so you've got that interest. You start to switch over. But do you remember letting go of the, the belief that this is real? Do you remember the age in which you started to become more cynical towards the concept or relatability that the supernatural might be real? Yeah. And, and honestly, I don't think that really happened until uh, wh where I really shifted uh, to being what I would say is more of a hardcore skeptic until I was actually, you know, maybe even in graduate school. Uh, and, you know, as an undergraduate, I was still interested in this stuff. You know, of course, then it was shifted to the X-Files and right. Star Trek and, you know, um, but, but I was still very interested in these topics. 
And then, you just keep getting better, Dr. Taren. <laughs> you know, and then at some point, you know, and it had to have been when I was working on my master's program. Uh, I, I'm not sure what happened, but something just clicked in my brain and, you know, made me sort of feel like this was all just wishful thinking. This was all just, you know, imagination. It was defense structures, right? Like my brain was, and maybe it was my training in psychology. I, I attribute some of it to that. It, learning about these things and going like, oh, I'm just kidding myself. I, you know, I want this to be true. This fantasy, it, it you know, it's a way to escape from reality, which is unpleasant and difficult at times, right? And so this is, it's, just, it's nothing more than just a, a, a way to, to get away from that. And so I was, you know, back to the Skeptical Inquirer, I subscribed to the Skeptical Inquirer and Skeptic Magazine. And um, I actually even wrote an article uh, for uh, for one of them at one point. And, and so I, I kind of totally flip-flopped, you know, as reading James Randi's books. And, you know, uh, so, you know, that's how far to the other side I went for a minute. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, it made sense to me, right? That it's like, oh, this is all very logical. There's a logical explanation for all of these things. And it has to do with, you know, the mind tricking itself. And the mind is very capable of that. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, and to be fair, I still believe that. I still believe the mind is very capable of tricking us. Um, and uh, I still, I think there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on that we can't explain. So I think both are true, you know. Well, that, that leads me to this aspect of it then. Uh, as you're studying science and you have a healthy fascination with the supernatural, and let's just for sake of the show, UFOs, ghosts, monsters, demons, possession, all of the strange things we cover on the show, we'll just put it under that umbrella. Um, and you're reading the science and learning how the brain works. Were there ever quirks to the science where you felt like, all right, you had a dream visitation from your grandfather. To me, that is the brain's way and subconscious way of trying to deal with mourning, dealing with the grieving process. That is something I think we can all look at on the basis and say, all right, th there's something to this. But were there times where the, the science just didn't measure up to the expectation of, or, or the explanation of the experience itself, where it's where you looked at it and said, you know, I don't know if we can broad stroke it that cleanly. You know, I mean, actually, I don't know that I really, you know, saw that uh, per mm -hmm. se. I mean, I, I was kind of totally flipped over into that side where um, I just, you know, I just didn't, I, I figured there was a rational explanation, even if I didn't know what it was. And I wasn't even necessarily digging into a lot of, uh, you know, the the skeptical science around it. But it was more just it was more just an assumption that I had that is like there has to be a rational explanation uh, for all of these things. Right. You know, and, you know, even if I don't know what it is and that's just, you know, I, I had a very atheistic uh, approach to, to all of it. Right. You know, including religion and spirituality. It was like none of this is real. It's all just the brain making up stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, our complex psychology. Uh, creating these stories. And and that was kind of it. And that was enough for me at, at that moment, right? Doesn't it seem like at times science can put a Band-Aid over an explanation of an experience as though science is trying to make itself feel better, as if it's saying, without saying, 
I don't have a real grasp or understanding of what's taking place, but we can pretty much summarily dismiss all of this because we know that rooted in our subconscious and in our id and ego and superego, there is this conflict of wanting to balance reality and para-reality, if you will, to, mm-hmm. to balance reality and things we desire or want that are just outside of our grasp. Science just uh, to me, it seems like some of their explanations dead on. You could, if you could say, Dave, here's point A, here's point Z, this is how we get there. But when a lot of these topics are brought up, and I listen to quote unquote scientists, they mm-hmm. even seem to have kind of a breakdown in the way that they're trying to compensate those, those two findings or the their theory against our theory kind of feeling. Yeah, and, and and especially more kind of now where I'm sitting, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, science really does a disservice to a lot of this this work by just writing it off, uh, kind of like I was doing, right? That it's like, this is impossible. There's no reason to even have a conversation about it. And there's certainly no reason to study it because it's impossible. This isn't the way the world works. So that's it. It's, it's the end of the story. And, you know, to me, like where I'm sitting now, that seems like sort of crazy land because at least where I'm at now, that's what science is, I thought, you know, it was to explore the unknown. I thought that's what we were supposed to do as scientists. We don't understand something. Something is happening. At a bare minimum, we can say people are having experiences. Whether you believe them or not, doesn't really matter. People are having these experiences. Shouldn't we be studying it? to understand what is going on here instead of just saying, well, that, you know, that's just hogwash. We don't understand it. So we're just going to write it off. That doesn't make any sense. That's not even scientific. Right. Because again, and I, I love the concept that science has fallen on its own tongue repeatedly through history. It states one thing clearly only to trip over it and find out later that they were grossly wrong in their assumptions and their theologies. They end up realizing that, and, and I use this one ad nauseum, but I love it because I think it's one of the best ones out there is when the, the doctor and scientist who came up and said, listen, ulcers uh, are, are, are reactive bacteria that we can cure using antibiotics. And science laughed him off the stage at a symposium and basically shunted this guy's career for quite a while until lo and behold, they realized, oh, it's a bacteria we can control with antibiotics. And then... It's not so stupid. Magic in the past is what we call science today. The the potions and elixirs that the witches and the 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 shamans were grinding together to create are what we now call aspirin. Right? Are 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 these things that can explain so much of of that part of science? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and actually, a lot of my background is in neurofeedback, and uh, you know and for listeners that aren't familiar, you know, you're, you're basically training the brain by monitoring brainwave signals and then providing feedback on what you would like it to do more or less of uh, to create more flexibility in the brain. And when I first started doing that 25 years ago, the, the vast majority of researchers, scientists, you know, neuropsychologists uh, all said, yeah, this is garbage. This is this is voodoo. This is this does nothing. And now, 25 years later, there's quite a bit of research demonstrating very clearly that, no, this works, right? (laughs) And and now, all of a sudden, people are kind of changing their tune. 
oh, okay, well, maybe there is something to this, right? You know. And isn't it funny that that science of automotive technology kind of figured it out long before brain science, the fact that we can compensate for the sound a car makes, the vibration, by kind of recreating that vibrational tonality, playing it back, and it it evens it out, right? And, and the art of makeup, we can realize that, oh, Dave's got rosacea. If we use light green makeup on those red spots, the camera will look at it and, and the green will negate the red out. Even though I've got green spots on my face, the camera sees both, puts them together and creates a seamless face, unlike the unrelenting YouTube camera, which sees everything. But it's funny that those concepts were accepted years ago. But the idea that if we take the brain and feed back uh, that that information to the brain, that the brain could use it to learn and escalate or de-escalate situations, emotions, and uh, different learning techniques. Yeah, for sure. And I like your examples, right? Because it kind of gets, I think, to the core of a lot of where this conversation is probably going. But, you know, talking about vibration and frequency. Uh, you know, energy. And, you know, that's what brainwaves are. It's energy. And well, all the examples you gave, we use and we work with energy all the time. And so why wouldn't we be able to work with energy from what the brain is generating? Uh, you know, it, when you say it like that, it's kind of like, well, that seems obvious. It seems like a really basic statement, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, and we do it in other medicine, you know, I mean, what's an ultrasound? You know, you're using energy to image something. Um, so we do it all the time. Uh, but it's funny, right? Because we just it's get an baby idea. LIDAR. It's baby <laughs> LIDAR. We're just going over the topical surface of a pregnant woman bouncing radi- radiation or not radiation, but sound waves into to show imagery of what's there. Listen, folks, I know some of this sounds like um, voodoo to you. And I know uh, that's to many of you that are still sitting on the fence, but that's the concept. It's okay to question these things. It's okay to not just fully believe. And for those of you that fully believe all this, it's okay to go lean into the science because we're finding, as I've been interviewing people for 18 years, that science is beginning to yield to these concepts and seeing the relativity and the connectivity of these belief systems that we've held so high in the woo-woo community are now actually beginning to play out in the science. And I'll make a quick mention for those of you in the Twin Cities area, if you'd like to expand your spiritual journey, you can do it at the premier holistic expo of the year at the Edge Life event. And it is reawakened Saturday 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the Delta Hotels by Marriott, Minneapolis, Northeast. And uh, if you are watching the video, you can scan the QR code or just go to darknessevents.com. Darknessevents.com. You'll find the banner and link there. Come on out and see me. I'll be a part of it along with a lot of fantastic speakers and vendors and people that can uh, work with you on energy levels. So come on out and expand your horizons. Darknessevents.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap? Read a book? Or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, 
I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get better help. Visit betterhelp.com p60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's better help h-e-l-p dot com slash p60 it's time to take control of your life dave's here rooting you on and if i can do this you can do this let's do this together betterhelp.com slash p60 there's a link for it on today's program guide all right we're back dr jeff tarrant our guest this evening again he is the author of a brand new book becoming psychic this is an amazing book if you have not had a chance to pick it up here is a a link for it in today's program guide so that you can find it and read the book for yourself and i think you are going to absolutely love the information that you're able to glean from this book now in 2013 dr tarrant life took quite an amazing turn and twist for you when science and your love of the supernatural came head to head again. Talk us through this moment, would you? Yeah, sure. I was actually working at the University of Missouri at the time. Uh, I lived in Missouri back then and uh, as a health psychologist, and I had a biofeedback lab on campus for, you know, the students and had a couple students working with me in the lab. And one of them had been with me for the entire year. And uh, his name was Matt. And at the end of the year, he was graduating. We took him out to dinner, you know, a thank you dinner. See you. Good luck on your next adventure. And he started telling us this weird story. And I mean, I'll never forget it because he was so awkward, you know, like, uh, I want to tell you about my mom. And it was like, okay, you know, it's like, this is kind of random and had no idea where he was going with this thing. And went into this long involved story. I don't think I said a word for 30 minutes, right? Where he's telling this story about his mom, Janet Mayer, who uh, a- apparently had some psychic and mediumistic abilities from an early age. But th- what his story was about was after going to a holotropic breathwork experience, uh, you know, you're breathing rapidly and there's uh, evocative music playing in the background and it can it can be very psychedelic. And she went to one of these experiences and midway through kind of sat up and just started speaking this other language. Uh, She had no idea what she was saying. She didn't even know if she was saying something, you know, I mean, it sounded like a language. And what was interesting is after this, you know, holotropic breathwork event, it, it kept happening. She went home, she'd be cooking dinner and all of a sudden this stuff would start coming out of her mouth. She'd be at the grocery store and these words or whatever they were would come flowing out. And so he's telling me this story. And and at the time that he told me this, this had been going on for four years. Hmm. Uh, And 
she had been contacting every kind of professional, you know, researchers, linguists, anybody that she thought might be able to help her because she she didn't know what was going on. You know, she didn't know if she was crazy or if this was really a language or if it was just gibberish. She'd never heard it before. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually she found an anthropologist uh, who was working at the Smithsonian at the time who had connections to uh, uh, he was actually a, uh, had some shamanistic training in a South American uh, tribal culture. And he recognized something in her languages. And over time, he listened to multiple tapes and identified that she was speaking four different tribe South American tribal languages. And, you know, these were prayers and healings and teachings and, you know, which for her, this was great. This was conf con confirmation because she felt like she was saying something like it was meaningful, but she had no clue. And this was, this went on for years. And so Matt's telling me the story. And I think hoping that I didn't think he was crazy, uh, you know, and of course where he was going with this was like, so, Hey, do you want to map my mom's brain? You know? And I was like, yeah. That's a you weird know. way to try to set your mom up with your professor, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's married. Uh, so am I, but, uh, you know, but, but it was a, it was a very odd, uh, set of circumstances. And turns out, uh, Janet lived about three minutes from my dad in St. Louis. And so, uh, over the course of the next few years, I mapped Janet's brain. I don't even know how many times, four or five, six times. We'd have these long sessions of, of you know, having her speak the language. And now she has control over it. She can turn it on, turn it off. Um, and so she was the one that I, I, I jokingly say that it's her fault that I'm, I'm in this field now. Because, you know, once I started mapping her brain and looking at it, and started going like, what is going on here? Right. Like, cause that's a heck of an introduction, uh, you know, to this world or something so dramatic. Right. Well, let's, let's stop it there for a second. You've, you've got this guy telling you this story. <laughs> there, there's a leap of faith that has to go from a story that's being told to me to, I'm going to take science into this and begin <laughs> mapping your brain using EEG. So uh, first of all, do you have to go through like the university to get approval to start mapping this woman's brain because she's uh, speaking in tongues? Uh, no, because I had my own equipment. Uh, so I just did it privately. I didn't even talk to the university about it. I was like, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go do this on the side. You were all and, Fox Mulder up on this. I like it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And, so uh, EEG, that's mapping brain. Can you explain that for our listeners and viewers around the world that may not be familiar with EEG, how it works and what you were doing prior to studying this woman? What do you use EEG for? Yeah. So EEG, electroencephalograph, it's uh, essentially you're putting little electrodes, attaching them to the scalp, and they are able to measure the electricity in the brain, mm -hmm. and, you know, through the head, through the scalp, through the brain, you know, through the skull. And then translate that electrical signal into the different frequencies that the brain is producing. So most people are familiar with delta, theta, alpha, beta, those kinds of things. And those are just different frequencies because the brain actually makes a lot of different types of electricity. And so, you know, through this technology, we can measure 19 areas at the same time of the brain mm -hmm. and then quantify those signals. So 
you know, how much delta is there, how much beta is there in all of the different locations. And so for me, it's been a really useful tool because you could measure somebody's brain at baseline just when they're sitting doing nothing, or like in Janet's case, having a, a regular conversation in English, and then measure her brain again when she's, you know, speaking these languages and say, well, what's the difference? How did your brain change between these conditions? And kind of almost subtract them from each other. And, you know, so prior to doing this work, well, and I still I still do the other work as well, but, you know, really using this technique, this quantitative EEG as a tool to see what's going on in people's brains who are having some kind of mental health concerns. Uh, and then that can help us identify strategies that might be helpful to help things get more balanced or more flexible or more adaptive. Uh, and so that I've been using it for, you know, 20 something years before before I met Janet. So perfect. So your case studies are trying to find people that might have mental uh, issues going on and try to map them out and understand it. As you're watching Janet's EEG, are you seeing reflections of what what science would have looked at as something as psychosis or uh, some kind of neurological damage? Uh, and I hate to use that kind of terminology, but science seems to summarily, you know, broad stroke a lot of these things. Were you seeing any of those aligning? The things that I saw, so the, the one pattern that I saw was, uh, and this was just a baseline, so she wasn't doing anything at, at this moment, but because we could also take people's brainwave data and compare it to a normative database and say, well, how does your brain behave compared to average, right? You know, um, and so Janet had a lot of excess theta activity, kind of a slower brainwave that is sometimes associated with like ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, now. You know, Janet may or may not have ADHD. I, you know, I don't know for sure, but uh, that's certainly that wasn't a presenting concern of hers. Um, but what's interesting to me is thinking about what that could mean otherwise, right? Because generally, if somebody has a lot of theta and it's associated with ADHD, what that means is that the brain is not as able to inhibit things, which is why folks with ADHD might say things they shouldn't say or kids get out of their chair in class when they're not supposed to, or they get mad and hit somebody, right? It's like, there's this lack of inhibition. And so to me, it's like, hmm, maybe the lack of inhibition with that theta is actually helpful for her to be able to access these languages or maybe some of her other abilities, right? That if the brain was too busy inhibiting things, you couldn't tune in, you couldn't tap in. So, you know, you know, perhaps it's not a bad thing in this case, right? Or something that's negative or something that needs to be changed. In fact, maybe it's a, a positive thing. You know, the other pattern, the only other real pattern that showed up uh, that was significant was during the language, when she was speaking the language. And then she had this activity in one specific region of the brain, the, the kind of right parietal lobe mm -hmm. that, you know, when I saw it, the first time I saw it, I thought first something's wrong with my equipment. The the connections are bad or something, something's going on here. Uh, and the second thought that I have was just like, is this some sort of weird seizure? Because it almost looked like seizure activity. Uh, but it was very localized, which is not generally the way seizures behave. You know, seizures kind of take over the brain. Mm -hmm. And I was watching her the whole time she was doing this. And she wasn't, she did, wasn't displaying any kind of typical seizure behavior, right? Which 
So even even for petite mal seizure, where it wouldn't be not necessarily a radical exposure to the brain, but in a segmented form. Right, because even then, right, typically people will sort of like like they'll kind of like space out for a second, right? They they, they like pause, right? Like something's mm -hmm. happening, they just kind of like stop, you know, and then they kind of kick back in. And no, she was just kind of doing her thing the whole time, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I showed it to other people and they were kind of like, oh, there's something wrong with your, uh, your cap or, you know, and I used multiple caps. I triple checked my connections. You know, I did this multiple times in different scenarios and it kept showing up. So, you know, again, for me, it's like, okay, if I keep seeing something and I've checked every possible reason this could happen, it's got to be real, right? It's like, it's not, it's not just some artifact. Mm -hmm. Um and so really, I mean, again, kind of blaming Janet for me getting into this world, you know, when I started looking at, well, what's going on in that part of the brain, right? Because it keeps happening, but it only happens when she's doing this language thing. Uh, and interestingly, that part of the brain has been kind of called the God spot uh, mm -hmm. in the media. And, you know, it's a part of the brain that's involved in boundaries, setting boundaries between self and other. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, it was like, this is really curious, right? Because perhaps what's happening here is that however she's doing it, this seizure-like looking activity is kind of temporarily shutting down that part of the brain so that those rigid boundaries are not there for the moment. You know, and maybe that's the way that she's able to tap in is kind of getting her brain out of the way mm -hmm. so that, you know, she's able to access information outside of the self, if you want to think of it that way. Sure. All right. Fascinating in, in the sense that having had my own kind of psychic-like experience uh, on the night of January 1st, uh, 1988, with my mom, my brain was nowhere as I was just driving friends home back and forth. And then I would have these visions of my mom collapsing, visions of my mom being carted out in an ambulance. All of these strange but it was always in moments I just wasn't thinking. I was just driving, getting people home safely in no brain set at all. And then lo and behold, later that night, she had a grand mal seizure, collapsed, and mm. I was there. We got her into the hospital. So it's interesting that it is in those moments when I wasn't thinking or focusing on anything, but just doing that, you know, monotonous drive back and forth a hundred times to drop off friends on a New Year's Eve, that I was having those psychic connections. Now, you said that it was affecting uh, the, explain to me the part of the brain again that, that you were noticing it in? Yeah, it's the, the right parietal lobe. The, the, the specific area, you know, is, uh, you know, the superior parietal lobule, if you want to get really specific. But okay. it's basically this back right quadrant, uh, you know, of where there's some unusual activity. Now, and is science up to the point where, okay, we see it here. In this part of the brain, yeah, we can stimulate a false positive. We could stimulate activity in that part of the brain, uh, low low level electromagnetic field, to induce this. Again, is that a possibility, or is that frowned upon in the in the industry because it's messing with the brain? Uh, we can do it. Actually, that's kind of one of the things we're we're kind of working on right now. Is and, you know, people have been have been doing this, uh, you know, they've been experimenting with this for a while. You know, uh, Persinger, you know, has his God helmet, right? right? Mm -hmm. You know, and 
that's essentially what he's doing right now. He's using it in the temporal lobes, but <clears throat> you know, but he's got some other protocols as well. Right. And, but does Persinger, and maybe you can answer me on this because I'm sure you've done deeper dives and studies into this with Persinger's God helmet stimulating the, the lobes and people are seeing and witnessing beings, things um, that seem to be outside of our normal range of vision. But are there two people? Could could Dr. Jeff Tarrant and Dave Schrader sit side by side wearing the same helmet? And are we experiencing and seeing the same thing? Or is Dr. Tarrant seeing the cat in the hat and thing one and thing two? And Dave is seeing Major Tony Nelson from I Dream of Jeannie. And that's <laughs> probably a whole episode in itself. But will we see different things or do we see the exact same creatures before us? Yeah, good question. I don't know that anybody's looked at that specifically. Um, my feeling is, well, and if you look at Persinger's work, it's not like every single person sees stuff either, right? right? You know, it's like, you know, whatever it is, 40 or 50% or something. Uh, and so it's interesting because some Isn't people- Isn't that weird though, that if 40 or 50%, we now, okay, so that means he's done a hundred people. We know 40% have been able to see these things. Why not bring two of the people that have been able to see things in simultaneously put them into the God helmets and let them share the experience, whether it's in the exact same room or back to back or whatever. It seems like scientifically it would be much more impressive if Jeff and Dave are sitting next to each other, witnessing the same thing, because then that means that that isn't a hallucination. There is something there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like some of the stuff they're wanting to do with like the, uh, you know, DMT, extended DMT, uh, you know, experiences now, you know, where, you know, kind of sending people in and seeing, can we get any validity between people's experiences? Are they going to the same realm or whatever they're doing, right? When they're kind of right. in these psychedelic states. I think that's a brilliant idea. I mean, I'm gonna have to add it to my list of things to do now. Uh, I don't have a God helmet, but um, although actually I do have somebody who's sending me one, um, but uh, I've got other tech that does very similar things. Okay. And, you know, and so what I've been doing is, you know, really targeting uh, the God spot and, you know, and some other regions. Are and there any connections to the God spot and our, our communication abilities, our, our ability to understand and speak language, or are those two different parts of the brain? They're, they're, I mean, and, and most people are going to be pretty different. You know, most of the language stuff is going on in the left hemisphere in the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. And so that's, a, but it's another interesting pattern that I see over and over again with psychics and mediums and healers too, uh, is this left, right hemisphere differentiation. And a lot of times what they're doing is getting the left hemisphere out of the way, uh, kind of shutting down the left hemisphere and, and then you might see more activation actually in the right hemisphere. And to me, this actually makes a lot of sense. And it kind of ties to what you were talking about with your experience, that it's like you have to get out of the analytic mode, you know, where you're judging, you know, uh, analyzing, creating stories and narratives about whatever's happening. You got to shut that up for a minute so that you can just listen, which mm -hmm. is much more of the right hemisphere's job is more just experience. It's just the pure experience of something uh, as opposed to putting a label on it or sort of doing something with it. And so I think what, what happens with a lot of these folks is somehow they're able to get into that right side 
allow the information in, but then also have enough flexibility that then they can shift over to the left side and translate it and then kind of pop back over to the right again, right? So they have this very flexible kind of brain ability to shift back and forth, which, you know, I think most of us don't have, or we have, you know, we have it's a skill we have to, de- to develop. It's almost uh, like the analytical and artistic aspects of our brain are finally becoming one as opposed to living in two different sectors. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I, at, at least the little, the most recent research that I've seen mm-hmm. suggests that when you're, when you're really using your left hemisphere, it, it, the corpus callosum, the, the area in between the hemispheres that connects them literally shuts off access to your right hemisphere. Like you can't access it when you're in your left hemisphere. And so, so this is what makes me think that they're, they're really good at jumping back and forth, you know, and of course, you know, brain activity can move very quickly. And so, you know, I think they just have really flexible brains and they're able to kind of jog back and forth. Whereas for, you know, for, for me, you know, I mean, I've had lots of interesting experiences, but, you know, I'll tend to get either kind of stuck in one or the other, you know, I can get in that right hemisphere, nothing going on space, but then trying to translate that, that's almost like when you wake up from a dream, right? And it's like, you kind of have, have it there for a moment, but if you don't write it down or say it, it's like gone a second later. And you're like, oh man, you know, I had this really cool dream and I got nothing. Right. It just disappears. It's like you have to make it concrete. You have to bring it into the conscious mind somehow, um, which is what the left hemisphere does. Now, Um, I'm going to repeat another interesting, at least I find interesting story that this excites me in the sense of what is our capabilities going to be? And will science be willing to take these strange steps with us? Uh, Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices, right? We grew up with watching Bugs Bunny, Speedy Gonzalez, Foghorn Leghorn, Daffy Duck, Tweety Bird Sylvester. He was in a severe car accident. I believe it was in the 1960s that put him in a coma. And he oh, was wow. in a coma for a number of days and unresponsive. And it was one day his doctor had an idea and came in, leaned over Mel and said, Mel, I'd like to talk to Bugs Bunny. Is Bugs available? And Mel Blanc what's up doc and started talking to him as bugs bunny a creative character that lived in a different subsect of his brain so to me it seems like if that is one of the most compelling interesting arguments for what is brain death and what isn't we're we're looking subjectively to try to communicate with dave schrader well what if i've identified as james bond my whole life right? What if I've always just wanted to be Bond? I've always wanted to be that guy. What if in a coma, instead of talking to Dave Schrader, we try to engage James Bond, or we try to engage that that personality, the darkness Dave personality of my, my, my life? Will that access, will that bring it out? And if so, could we stimulate or maybe even shut down that part of the brain with that kind of interference so that the other part of the brain can awaken again and find a way to communicate to us in a coma state. Yeah, uh, that's a, it's a clever idea. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, um, but what's interesting, you know, like from some of my early neurofeedback work, there was a, you know, one of the, the early kind of legends in the field, her name was Margaret Ayers. And her whole thing was doing neurofeedback with people in comas. And she had story after story after story of kind of bringing people out of comas 
And it's like, oh, they're unresponsive. You can't. And she was providing feedback to them about their own brain functioning when they were in a coma. <laughs> and, you know, again, somehow this kind of like nonverbal, she was talking to a different part of the brain that responded. Understood. Right. Understood. And, you know, and it responded. And, and you know, next thing you know, they're starting to move and they're starting to verbalize. And, you know, so, uh, you know, it makes sense to me, right, that there's there's got to be other ways to access, uh, you know, brain functioning than kind of the traditional ways that we think of. Um, I mean, and, and actually, you know, not to not to go here necessarily, but, you know, one of the other stories I talk about in the book is working with these autistic individuals that are ridiculously telepathic uh, and they're nonverbal. Right. You know, they, they don't they don't use uh, spoken language at all. They communicate by pointing to a, a letter board. And, you know, they're easily the most telepathic people I've ever seen in my life without without a doubt. Uh, I've seen I've, I've I've worked with three of them and they're all nonverbal and they're all autistic. And so it's interesting because their brain is operating in a different way. Uh, but, you know, they have direct communication. They got a direct link to their primary caregiver. You know, they know exactly what they're thinking. And, you know, that's wild. Uh, so clearly there's a whole lot more going on here than we understand. Very cool. We have to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll discuss more with our guest. And we've got a link for his book on today's program guide. So please go check it out for yourself and uh, don't hesitate. Get the book, read the book, understand the book, and then make sure to go and rate and review the book online because all of those ratings and reviews goes a long way to help expose the book to more and more readers. We'll be back with Dr. Jeff Tarrant right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, maybe take a nap, read a book, or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. 
Less than 10 tickets remain to join me and Dalen Spratt at the Palmer House Hotel in Sauk Center, Minnesota for April 19th through the 21st as we investigate haunted claims from not only the one of the most haunted hotels in Minnesota, but we're going to do a couple of field trips out to a few of the local cemeteries to see if the spirits have something to say. So shift the paranormal with me and Dalen Spratt from the Graveyard Shift, Ghost Brothers, Ghost Brothers Fright Club, and more. We would love to see you there. Get tickets now at darknessevents.com. All right, we're back. Dr. Jeff Tarrant, our guest this evening, and uh, love this conversation. I want to, um, we, we've talked about some of this different abilities and things, and I love that you're telling me science is working on connecting with those pathways. Do we know if, if that woman was doing, and I apologize, I don't remember her name, but if she was having such great response, why have we stopped? Uh Wait a minute. Who, who are we talking about? With the doctor that was doing the feedback to coma patients. She oh. was getting them to awaken or awaken parts of them. Why is that not a continuing strategy at most hospitals? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, she was, I mean, because this was in the early, early days of neurofeedback, you know. Mm. So, you know, we're talking now, you know, what, 40, 50 years ago when she was doing this and uh, you know, and at that time, it was kind of the same thing we've been talking about where everybody else and just about everybody in the neurofeedback community was like, that's crazy. Like that, this can't work. Even though she kept getting results and she kept reporting on what she was getting, nobody else was doing it. You know, you know, it just seemed like crazy. You know, mm-hmm. again, it, it, I mean, it's actually a perfect example of the stuff we've been talking about, right? Here's somebody who's demonstrating that this can work. But everybody else is going like, that's impossible. That shouldn't work. And it's like, well, here's the evidence. It's like, well, yeah. And what did did science just find? They just found another Milky Way-like galaxy that should not exist, should not have been able to create itself because there was a lack of dark matter, at least in their concept, from the Big Bang theory. So we're finding out constantly that what we thought was not possible, not only is possible, but it has happened. This is exciting time to be alive. And I'm glad that we're seeing these kind of um, things taking place. I hope that science will continue to take the evolutionary steps that we need to progress further. Now, you said, and I quote, I was left with the conclusion that Janet was somehow channeling several people, beings or entities in those moments when she was having that happen. Jeff, have you ever considered going online, checking some of these religious church videos that exist of of people speaking in tongues to see if, in fact, they are also speaking these old languages or, or maybe not even old languages, but languages we're unfamiliar with on this hemisphere that are, are still part of a spiritual community there? Because I find it fascinating that Janet was speaking prayers and healing which is what people are doing in church environments when they are speaking in tongues. Where are we going with that? And have you in- investigated that at all? Yeah, I have not investigated that. That's a really interesting take on it, right? Because, um, you know, I, I, it's another one of these assumptions, right? And and I'm guilty, right? Like I make, I've made the assumption that it's like, oh, you know, glossolalia, you know, what they're, you know, speaking in tongues, the sort of the Pentecostal, evangelical kind of practice, right? That mm-hmm. it's like they're being possessed by the Holy Spirit 
And it's not really a language that we understand, right? It's some sort of whatever it is, right? It's it's information coming through and it's coming out in this stuff that sort of sounds like a language. So this is my this has been my assumption, right? And it's like, well, but what if it is a language? <laughs> and nobody's so your question is a really, I think, good one. Actually, so I haven't looked at that. One of the things that I have I'll let you co-author the paper with me, Dr. Tarrant. We okay, can work that, this together. Let's let's do it. Well, <laughs> the other thing that I've been that I've been starting to do is, and and actually the book has helped me, right? Because people look at the book or they listen to an interview, and then somebody goes, "Oh, hey, I've got an interesting experience," you know, and it's like, okay, um, I've had a, a few people reach out that uh, it wasn't holotropic breath work, but they had some other interesting triggering experience where either some sort of a language came through or some other interesting ability. And so I'm curious about that because lots of people do holotropic breath work all the time. You know, I've, I've participated in, I don't know, six or seven sessions myself. Right. And up to, before Janet, I'd never heard of anybody saying, Oh, I started speaking this, you know, I started channeling these languages. Right. And it's like, okay, why Janet? Like how everybody else that does holotropic breath work, you know, how come they don't have this happen? And it got me thinking like, well, maybe they do. And I just don't know about it. Right. Because I didn't know about Janet. You right. know, if, if Matt hadn't been my lab assistant, I'd still be under the assumption that, you know, it's an interesting psychedelic experience and that's kind of the end of it. Um, but clearly for some people, there's more that happens. It, it kind of unlocks something or it has that potential. And so, you know, I'm curious in investigating that more too, right? Looking at people who have had, you know, either through breath work or psychedelics or anything else that it kind of unlocked something. Oh, you got one. Me. I would be happy to sit in your EEG chair and uh, take ayahuasca again. At least the version that I took in New York, which didn't leave me messing my pants or vomiting, but had <laughs> one of the most profound experiences over a three to four hour period of my life. I would love to, to be... And I would volunteer willingly to be a part of an experiment where you could map what's going on because I had a myriad of experiences that are as clear in my memory as this conversation, probably even more clear than this conversation will be in two days. And that's no offense to you, Dr. Tarrant, but you know what I'm saying is the, these images, I also was uh, affected in the sense that I was having... Um, Catholic experiences. I'm not Catholic. I didn't grow up Catholic. I've had no, I mean, Virgin Mary is the mother of Jesus and a very nice woman from my understanding, but she's never been a part of my theology. And I was fully aware that I was speaking to the Virgin Mary at one wow. point and aware that this isn't part of my paradigm. Also aware, this is where I, and I want to talk, I'm bringing this up for a reason. I was aware, <laughs> bear with me on this. I saw this and dropped to my knees. I was in the bathroom, and when I turned, the, the towels were hanging over the towel racks in a way, and I looked and immediately associated it with the Virgin Mary and dropped to my knees. And I remember being aware that I was in her presence, being aware that I'm not Catholic and I don't understand why I'm having this experience, and fully aware that I'm looking at towels. But it was like, thematically all three could exist at the same time. Yeah. And I thought I, to me, that was such a fascinating and compelling element of that experience that 
that it seemed the imaginative, the analytical, and the uh, uh, the conscious part of my brain were all succinctly seeing things on multi layers in one particular instance. Yeah, and I think that's so. First off, come on down. Let's map your brain. Do uh, it, or, or or have me up, and I'll map I'll map your brain up there. But. Uh, I don't have equipment here. It'd probably be better if I come to you, Jeff. It's a, it, it, it's portable. I can take it with me. Perfect. Uh, but um, but the other part, right? The, the your sort of experience with uh, you know ayahuasca, and of course, people talk about this with lots of plant medicines. Uh, you know, I have so, sort of similar ish experiences, and it's interesting because from a brain perspective, the primary thing that happens in the brain with all of those, you know serotonergic psychedelics, right? So psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca, mm -hmm. is it shuts down the default mode network. And the default mode network is a connection of areas in the brain that essentially creates your sense of identity, your sense of self, how you see yourself, how you see your connection to the world. And again, it's another filter, right? It's another filter that restricts information normally. And so during these experiences, it shuts that off. So all of a sudden now you have access to perception and experiences that you would normally not have access to because your brain's busy keeping it out. Mm -hmm. Well, we, and we'll have to talk after the show. Uh, so stay after we say goodbye. I'll okay. have things to chat with you about. But in all seriousness, I would love to participate in a few of these concepts and I can go a little deeper with you. I've talked about this on the show in the past, so I don't want to reinvigorate that when we're talking on this. So now that you've had this experience, you're left with the conclusion that she was in fact somehow channeling several people, beings, or entities. How did that affect your scientific rational mind after having kind of placated yourself with science first, <laughs> supernatural, a little lower on the level at this point? Yeah. You know, and and to be honest, it took me a minute to get to that realization, right, or or that at least understanding that that's what was happening. Um, even the first time or two that I met with her, you know, I was still trying to rationally figure out, like, okay, is this glossolalia? Is this something? Is the, you know, I was digging into research on linguistic stuff that is not my area at all, trying mm -hmm. to figure out, okay, what's going on here, right? Like, it's like, eh is it really a language? Eh, you know, um, I was still trying to kind of rationally figure out what was going on. And, you know, honestly, part of what finally got my brain to shift besides just seeing this multiple times over and over again, uh, was just the genuineness of Janet. I mean, just her, you know, she's just very open, very curious. She wasn't trying to, she's not trying to do anything. She, she's as curious about this as, as everybody else, right? Like what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once I finally kind of like said, okay, like, I don't know what else to do with this. Like the only, the only conclusion I can come to is that, you, you know, these energies coming through her in the form of language, I mean, based on what they're saying, based on what they're doing, based on the fact that it's multiple different tribal dialects, that there's no way she could possibly know. Mm -hmm. it, it has to be channeling. Like, what else could it be? Right. right. And, and you know, and so for me at that point, you know, that's really when all of a sudden I got way more interested and was like, okay, cool. What else can we do here? Right. And so, you know, 
Janet, you know, started introducing me to all of her medium friends uh, across the country. And, and that's really where things took off for me was, you know, because then it was like, I'm like, OK, I'm in. Let's do this, you know, and started, you know, meeting many more, you know, really solid uh, practitioners and, you know, collecting a lot more data. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to credit Janet with kind of the massive turning point of, you know, where I can't deny this, you know, I, you know, there's only so much, you know, the rational mind can kind of, you know, argue through. Now, it, right. And you, you speak to Janet about it. She seems to just kind of succumb to, this is just who I am. This is part of who I am. There's no other element to this. It's it's not even like she's trying to purge it. She's just accepted it for what it is, which leads me to another one of your uh, quotes that I absolutely love because we've spoken about it on the show. Uh, one of my absolute favorite quotes from you is, I have seen enough to make me believe that our minds are capable of much more than most of us dare to imagine. And that I think is so powerful because people feel so limited and powerless in our situations and in our lives that I've said that most of these things that we are dealing with, most of these things that we are experiencing are elements I think that we've always been able to do, but we've lost mm -hmm. touch with how to do it. And that I, I don't think we need to ascribe the fact that it was an alien intelligence that awoken it up, uh, inside us. It can coexist. It has always been there. Or, you know, that there are different elements. We don't have to demote who we are to explain how it is and how it exists. It can it can be simpatico. We can just have this experience because it is bred into who we are. And we should, if we learn to get out of our way, have a grander experience in life than we are currently having. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And I mean, that's been kind of another conclusion that I've kind of come to, right. And it's not, it's not like I'm the first one to come up with this idea. Right. But, but that, you know, really, um, I think these are natural abilities that we're all born with. And then as we develop, as the brain develops, as we're enculturated uh, in our, you know, in society and in school and in religion and everything else, we sort of learn to shut those parts down. And, and again, the brain seems to be a huge inhibition mechanism. You mm -hmm. know, the brain is largely designed to stop things and to filter information. And, you know, Aldous Huxley, you know, was one of the first ones to talk about that, right? Calling it a reducing valve, <laughs> you know, and, right. um, and, you know, I think he was right. And, and so I think the trick is learning how, like, well, how do we sort of unlock th the potential, right? And unlocking the potential, I think, means getting the brain back into a little bit more of an open state where it's not so rigid uh, and not so closed, and, you know, and, and there are ways to do that. And so we can learn, we can retrain the brain to help us, you know, so that we can access these things. Some people can do it naturally, right? Or some people have an experience like Janet that kind of cracks it open. But if you don't have that, I think you can still learn. It just takes practice, right? You have to retrain your brain. What advice do you have to people that are still out there that are skeptical that these abilities are possible? Yeah, that's a, that's always a tricky one, right? You know, because it's like, um, and, and I like what you said earlier. It's like it's it's good to be skeptical, and I'm still skeptical. You know, mm -hmm. I still, you know, pretty much the first time I I see a new person or a new thing, I'm usually kind of like, Meh. 
okay, you know, we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in the show me state, right? So, you know, it's like, ah, eh, um, I don't know. So I, I think healthy skepticism is a good thing. And kind of like you said earlier, it's good to have an open mind, right? You know, it's like, don't, I, I think it is, I think it is really short-sighted of us to think that we have all the answers, you know, as we've been talking about this whole time, there's a lot of things we don't understand. The universe is a very big place. You know, we don't even know how to talk about consciousness half the time. Uh, so, you know, be open. It's like, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't know. And so just be open to the possibility that there's something out there that we don't understand. And, you know, that's it. You don't, you don't have to believe anything. Just be open to it and see what happens, right? Just out of curiosity with Janet, does she have familiar roots in the um, the languages she was speaking, meaning that she might have uh, genetically shared DNA with that group? Because could it be a genetic memory of some sort? That's a, that's a great question. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't think she has any South American connections at all. Um for 99 bucks, we can find out. Let's throw her through Ancestry.com. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I bet she's done that, too. So um, I'll have to, I, I still talk to her periodically. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to send her an email and say, hey, uh, Janet, I was just talking about you on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this question came up, uh, but she's great. You know, she'll, um, you know, and I'm sure she's considered it because, you know, she's been investigating this for herself for, you know, over a decade, trying to figure mm-hmm. out, trying to understand it as much as she can, you know. Do you know, and I know we've got people that are out there um, still having a hard time swallowing any of this. Sure. Uh, Aside from your book, is there a place that people can go see and study actual clinical tests and results with this type of phenomena that you feel represent the best scientific methodology? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's a few really great organizations that have been doing this work for a long time, you know, and, uh, you know, I really uh, appreciate the work that IONS does, Institute of Noetic Sciences. And uh, Dean Radin is the chief scientist there. And he's published, I don't know, four or five or six books that right. are, you know, really well done. I really like the way he writes. He's able to take, uh, you know, take the, the cumulative data from these areas and really synthesize it in a way that's easy to understand. And, and even when you listen to him talk, you know, you can tell that he's still, he, he's clearly open-minded, but he's also a scientist. And, you know, he's looking at the numbers, you know, what are the, and if the numbers don't, don't add up, he'll say it, you know, and it's like, nah, you know, um, so I, you know, the Ryan Institute does a lot of really good research, uh, you know, with psi abilities, things like that. Uh, Winbridge does a lot of great research with mediumship. Uh, Julie, and are there are there peer reviewed um, actual reports and studies out there that people can access to read and see who reviewed them, how they were scientifically devolved and and uh, dissected? Absolutely, yeah, and and actually all of those places that I just mentioned, you know, most of them have resources listed right on their website, right? So you can find the articles and you can kind of do, you know, kind of dig in a little bit. And, you know, in fact, you know, I'm a huge fan of Google Scholar. Uh, You know, you go to Google Scholar and, you know, type in some search words and you can get a lot of the original manuscripts 
for some of this research that's been done. And so you can see it all for yourself. Um, you know, and there, there is actually a lot of really great research and it's, it's still coming out. There was this, you might be aware of it. There was a study that just came out, I don't know, six months ago. And they were using uh, brain stimulation on the left prefrontal lobe to shut down that part of the brain temporarily. So using uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation on the left prefrontal lobe. And what they found is that when they did that, those subjects were better at mentally influencing the outcome of a random number generator. Uh, so you shut down part of the brain and you can, you know, you can influence. And this was published in a, a, a pretty high level journal called Cortex, right? This is, you know, this is a peer reviewed journal by other scientists. And, you know, so this stuff is kind of getting out there in a way that is uh, becoming more and more accepted. You know, you got to be careful how you talk about it in those journals. But, right. But the data is there, you know. Fascinating stuff. Exciting stuff. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, the book is out and available right now, Becoming Psychic Lessons from the Minds of Mediums, Healers, and Psychics, our guest, Dr. Jeff Tarrant. And uh, Jeff, we're going to have to talk, and I'm hoping that we can collaborate on a few things here in the very near future and uh, take this to another level. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. It was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Amazing guest great concepts and ideas. And I hope that you guys got from it as much as I did tonight as well. And may the darkness of this world be just a little bit more light with the information that we share here. Realize that we are more than just the sum of our parts, that we have within us greatness, and that it is going to take a concerted effort to explore these things. And you have to put that fear away. Walking in a place of fear will only torment you and keep you from elevating. You have to put away that fear and allow yourself to open and expand. I'm not asking you to rush out and start using hallucinogenics or doing things that are going to make you uncomfortable, but start to challenge your paradigms, open yourselves up, read books like Jeff's book, Becoming Psychic, read books like Echo Bodine's book, the still small voice and the gift. Start to explore these concepts for yourself and see if they make sense. See if you can truly come into contact with that element of who we are meant to be. And it is my sincere hope that you all live a life worth living and that you all grasp those opportunities and make the best of the little life that we have here on earth. I'll be back again Wednesday with the best paranormal news team on the planet or my team, whoever shows up, we're not sure, but make sure to tune in this Wednesday for the Paranormal 60 News.